but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him of those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we are who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from a heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, under the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in the Christ will rise first. Then we are who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For ye yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light of the day. We are not of the night or, or the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore encourage one another and build one another up, just as you were doing. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse thirteen, to, and chap and First Thessalonians chapter five, verse one to eleven. So see you now. Well, I guess I have to do something like this. Or... <laughs> yes, thank you for the reading. Have a good class. Uh, it's good to. Be with you. It's been about a year uh, since I was last uh, in this room. Happy to be back, and I believe I'm going to be coming quite frequently now, uh, as there's a change with the Athens Institute. Instead of meeting in the Thames Valley area, uh, we're coming to Watford starting in March. Uh, so I really appreciate your help and support. Uh, Penny and Malcolm, as you know, is preaching uh, other, uh, elsewhere today, and Leon, who's a real trooper. We had a great session yesterday, nine classes and uh, so much to learn. That was about church history. And yes, you're invited to join yesterday. If you're free yesterday, please come. <laughs> With God, all things are possible. But maybe you can join the next, uh, uh, the next session. Yes, uh, so Malk preached on Advent, which is the first coming. And the idea of a second coming, well, it's the same thing as saying a second Advent, right? An Advent is simply a coming. And it is a scriptural doctrine, uh, which is ignored in many places uh, completely. I, I, I know a minister in our area in Scotland, and at lunch I asked him if he believes uh, in heaven and hell. He said he definitely doesn't believe in hell. He doesn't even believe in a judgment day. Everyone is fine, nothing to worry about. I would like to think that way, but I would have to go against many passages in both Testaments. The second advent, the second coming, and death is not the end. When I was a teenager, slowly coming to faith, I didn't become a Christian until I went to university. But at that time, I started meeting some people who were a bit more serious, and they just couldn't help me to become more serious. 
But I noticed my dreams would change. I think I was probably a fairly anxious child and uh, my dreams were fairly predictable. Uh, I'd be on the run. And who'd I be trying to get away from? Typically, it was the KGB, now the FSB as they're called, or the mafia or the Nazis. And in some dream, it'd be a combination of those. But I also had dreams that the Lord was near. And I would know it because I would see a tornado. See, in my country, my home country, uh, and Canada are where 80% of the world's tornadoes are. You, you must have seen them, at least on documentaries. Fascinating. You know, how close would you want to get? But anyway, it's on the horizon. It's getting closer and closer. I'm trying to warn people about it. No one's paying attention to me. So it was my version of a second coming dream. And I had dozens of those. There's only one uh, dream type that's uh, more scary, which I've had many times, and that's stuck in traffic, trying to get to the airport, and I'm going to miss my flight. Now, to some of you that may not sound that bad, but if you knew me, you would, you would understand. <laughs> so even before I became a Christian, I was already obsessive is not the right word. I wouldn't say I was obsessing, but I was thinking about this. One, one, one day I was in a home with one of my atheist friends, another Doug or Douglas. I said, I have a book idea. So it starts out in, a, in the plane, and suddenly the crew disappear. And some of the passengers can't be located. And they look up in the front and the pilots are both gone. I said, wouldn't that be cool? Like they've been left behind. Well, personally, I don't believe that matches with, with what the Bible says, but that, that became a multi, well, multi-million is putting it way too lightly. That became a whole series of books and a film. And I could be a very rich man if I'd just been a couple years older, I suppose. But we have Of the uh, fog, hopefully. So, just reviewing quickly, Malcolm spoke about the first advent. I'm speaking on the second advent, and this is some material that I shared with brothers and sisters in Malawi, in southern Africa, right before uh, COVID. Uh, Malcolm explained to us what the incarnation means. I think he used the word "enfleshing." Uh, we say "indwelling." but it's God becoming one of us. This is, I would say, the central doctrine of Christianity. I'm not trying to separate it from the death and the resurrection, but this is the central miracle, God becoming one of us. Amazing thing. The incarnation, first advent, shows the church how to live in, in three ways, Malcolm said. It affirms the goodness of creation. It reveals a God who wants to hear from us. He wants us to pray. And yes, and shows us how to live. Okay, that is three things. And then advantages we have since Jesus, in a sense, hasn't lost his humanity. It, it, most Christians believe that Jesus was fundamentally changed. It's not just he's second member of the Trinity, he comes to earth, he's a man for a while, and then he goes back. But something's changed. I don't really understand that. I mean, does Jesus still have a kind of body? Maybe so, or probably so. The advantage we have, his mediation, his grace, and his hope. First Timothy, Hebrews, and Colossians. So today, I'll be coming from the Thessalonian letters, though you can find more in 1 Corinthians and in Revelation, although proceed with caution, uh, particularly where there are figures of speech. Well, we've already had the, uh, the first passage uh, uh, read. We don't want you to be uninformed. You can see it right behind me. That's from the English Standard Version. He doesn't want them to be uninformed because some of them are, because there's some confusion. And some are asleep, and he's not talking about falling asleep in church. This is a common metaphor for death. It doesn't mean that when you die, your soul sleeps, uh, an idea Luther had and many others have. I don't think you can support that. It's just a common way of saying that someone's dead. That person, you know, it's kind of a euphemism. 
where is he? You wouldn't say he croaked. You'd say um, he passed on or he's, he sleeps, you know, he's uh, resting. Grief is a normal response and that's okay. Uh, but, but it's not the end of the story because Jesus rose again and so will we who have fallen asleep. Now, for those who aren't Christians, Paul describes non-believers as without hope and without God in the world. But even they will be resurrected. Where I part company with theologians is I don't necessarily believe that the gift of eternal life is given to those who don't know God. Because uh, the New Testament says that we're mortal. It says that it, only God is immortal. So how could it be then that your soul is immortal and will live forever? That would contradict what the Bible says. But if you are given the gift of eternal life, then as though Adam and Eve had continued access to the tree of life, you would live forever. So immortality is not a given. That's a gift that God gives to those who love him. Something to think about, something to consider. For Christians, death is a doorway into a new realm of existence. In a body, we'll have a body and we'll be in the presence of God. But it is not the end. Time and again, um, I'm speaking to a brother or sister in a bad place, um, you know, typically on a deathbed, in a hospital, or hospice. And what I say is, I'll see you on the other side. Yeah, I, don't, I, I don't believe that uh, that person g- goes to the judgment day after the final breath. The judgment day is in the future. Uh, and the Bible says we're not judged except in the body. And only way God will judge you in your body if he raises you from the dead. And Jesus said in John 5, that happens at the second coming. The dead hear his voice, they come out. So much of the religious world thinks that people are already in heaven or hell. I could be wrong, uh, but I don't think the Bible teaches that. Really the opposite. The judgment day has to happen first. And for that to happen, the resurrection of the dead has to happen because we're judged in the body. So it's a little different to what you may have been taught if you ever went to a Christian funeral. Uncle Joe is up there looking down on us. That kind of idea. I'm sure he's somewhere. um, That's not the point of this message. But the idea that you somehow bypass the judgment day and the resurrection is irrelevant. You just get your reward or punishment as soon as you die. That's not biblical. That's an innovation that came into Christianity centuries after the death of the apostles. For this, and I'm just, the reading was perfectly fine, but read it again. For this, we declare to you by word from the Lord that we who are alive left until the coming, and this, of course, the second coming, because Paul's writing around 50 AD, the first coming's already happened. We won't go before those who have fallen asleep. Now notice this, the Lord will descend from heaven, a cry of command, voice of an archangel, sound of a trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then, passage a lot of people love, we who are alive, uh, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll always be with the Lord. So it's like we're caught up in the clouds and that's where we'll be. That's where you get your halo and your harp and your happiness. You'll be up in the cloud. I certainly believe that as a little boy. Now I was brought up Anglican, um, but so I, I didn't have many of the ideas of uh, things you might hear on radio. You know what I'm talking about? Some of these teachers. But I do remember a book I was given called The Littlest Angel. And it's a boy. I think he's like four or five years old. And there's a beautiful ivory staircase in heaven. And he drops his halo. It bounces down the stairs. I remember this. It's an idea that I'm going to be up in the clouds. Now, I fly a lot. I'm in the clouds quite frequently. Um, first time I was in the clouds, I was eight years old. The airplane, you know, old prop plane. I just felt like I could touch it. And that would be quite fascinating to be able to float and fly 
and flutter in the clouds, wouldn't it? I mean, who wouldn't like to do that unless you have fear of heights? But is that what's really going on? I, I think that only barely describes what's going on. Christ will return. And that means that like our own lives, human history is moving somewhere. It's moving towards a definite end. And if that's true, it's important how we live now. A couple of the major religions of the world deny this. They say that, no, no, you, you go, you're in a cycle of birth and rebirth, and that just keeps on going, and you may progress, but every few million years, the whole thing starts again, and forever and ever, that's the way it'll be. That's not what the Bible says. Life, it's not a circle. In ecology, there are certain circles, but life is not just a circle, nor is it a series of loops like that. It's a line, or I should say a line segment. And if you're not a Christian, I think it's just a line segment. If you're a Christian, it has a beginning, but it has no end. Think of that. Departed believers rise from the dead. So between their death and the resurrection, that is the resurrection of us, they're waiting. They're waiting in paradise, a place that the early Christians described as part of, it's like a waiting place. They're waiting in paradise. No judgment day before the resurrection. And it's a point, again, on which I think so many believers are horribly confused. Uh, and maybe because they've heard stories, uh, you know, someone had a near-death experience or you felt you're getting a communication from your grandmother. And I don't mean she said, lunch is ready, come downstairs. I mean a different kind of communication, right, from the other side. We will join them or whoever is still alive at that time on earth will go up and join them. Now, what does this mean? This next thought may be new, but I don't really know because you're very blessed to have someone like Malcolm who studied a lot of theology. So this may not be a new idea. In fact, I don't mind if you want to stop me if you say we know this already. The view I grew up with as a young Christian, let's say in my first 10, 20 years, was that we'll go up in the air and uh, we'll go to heaven. I, I was never, um, I didn't really fall for the premillennial teaching that we'll go up. And then there'll be tribulation on the earth and we'll be watching from the clouds. And, oh, yeah, I told her so, you know, she's zapped and all that stuff. It's not that God couldn't do that. Uh, it's just I think it's a questionable, um, forcible juxtaposition of of rapture and tribulation. It really doesn't work. I mean, in the New Testament, uh, tribulation is almost always something that we go through. It builds our character. It's not God getting back at the unbelievers. It's a different thing. So there's, there are two views. One is that the Lord takes us up to heaven and we stay there. The other is that he brings us down to earth and we stay there. When I first became active as a Christian, that second view that we might live on the earth was held by a group of people called the Jehovah's Witnesses. And it seems such an unusual view. And the little booklets they had that illustrated it seemed so... 1950s American and kind of cheesy, they do a lot better now with their graphics, that I just dismissed it right away. And also I had the idea that physical is bad, spiritual is good. Your body's bad, that's why it's gonna get old and look at it, it's already getting old. Gravity's having an effect, so your skin's slowly falling off your butt. And, and the earth is, you know, who cares about the earth? Now, I, I didn't go to the, the extreme some people do, they litter, they don't care about ecology, they don't care about climate. They just say, what does it matter? It's all gonna burn. Because the Bible actually tells us to take care of the earth, Genesis 1 28. The Bible says the earth itself will somehow be renewed. 
Yeah, so I don't have to, why should I make up my bed if my mom's gonna make it up? You know, that, but that's the view I think a lot of Christians have about the planet, and that's really wrong. And I think to be careless, even about little things like litter, that's a habit that will, that'll manifest in other ways. And ultimately, uh, it'll make us less fit for heaven, or we'll appreciate it less. I tend to think we'll be at the party, some people will appreciate it a lot more, depending how much they put in. Those who just did the minimum, They'll still love it, it'll be wonderful, but their experience, I think, may be different. So this idea, hmm, now you're familiar with Revelation 21, where uh, we have the New Jerusalem, and what does it say in Revelation 21 and 22? That in this vision of John the Apostle, he sees uh, the, the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and it lands on the earth. Now, I think it's symbolic, it's either a, a cube, 1,400 miles on a side, or it's a pyramid. It's something. Um, normally, in this kind of literature, things are not what they seem. So if you can envision it, that's great. But you may be misunderstanding if you envision it. The question is more, what does that stand for? What does that mean? Because uh, that kind of cube or pyramid or tetrahedron really wouldn't work well, it, it, knowing the shape of the Earth. But my point is not the shape of it or whether there's an actual sun. It's where it is. It's coming down to earth. It's like heaven comes to earth. That's, that's what Revelation says. Now, you do have visions of, of angels in heaven and some of the uh, martyrs uh, up in the clouds. Uh, visions like that. But as far as where we would be, it seems to be not up there. Now, that's another idea that I, I resisted for years. And I still am. I'm not sold, but I'm afraid there's more evidence for that than I used to think. So when Paul says, we'll meet the Lord in the air, what does it mean? Where will we always be with the Lord? Now, I'll give you a little analogy. When I visit a certain country, my next country, well, I'll be in Norway next weekend. I'm pretty sure he'll meet me at the airport. He'll come to the airport and then I'll take him through security and we'll go back on the plane and he'll live there forever with me. No, actually, he's come to the airport to meet me and then he'll be taking me into town. We're spending Christmas, my wife and I, and one of our kids will be spending Christmas in Nepal. I get to Nepal, I think I know who'll meet me at the airport. My wife and I will be flying together. What will happen then? My friend has come to the airport to meet us. What happens then? So we've come down so to speak, in the plane, and then we see our friend and we take them in the plane and we fly away. No, it's actually, they're coming to welcome us and they'll take us to our, in this case, a temporary home or hotel. That's how it works. It's like a greeting party. In ancient times, when townspeople went out to welcome a visiting dignitary, there's a special word for that in the Greek, it's called hypothesis. The hypothesis was a very common thing. Julius Caesar, the uncle of Augustus Caesar, the first emperor, Julius Caesar, before the time of Christ, is traveling from town to town. In each place, delegations from the town are sent to welcome him. We find this kind, that same word, hypothesis, in Matthew 25. Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And in that parable, what happens? The parable of the foolish virgins. Well, they come out to meet him, and then they go back inside, and the doors are closed. And the foolish virgins, they're on the other side. But they come out to meet him, I also found this in Acts 28. The brothers in Rome, when they heard about us, this is Paul um, appealing to Caesar on his prison journey, 
The brothers came as far as the former of the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Well, three forms. This is getting close to Rome. The brothers come out. They meet Paul and his party. And then they walk with them to Rome. So coming out to meet them and to escort them. It's almost a hospitality thing. I wrote to a friend of mine who's a New Testament scholar and an expert, and especially in the Thessalonian letters. He's famous for that. So before I put this lesson together, I just wanted to check because I'm not an expert. I'm just someone who loves the Bible. I asked my friend, Jeff is his name. He said, yes, Douglas, I am convinced that is exactly what Paul is doing. He's evoking the image well known in the city of Thessalonica, which was always working hard on promoting its relationship with Rome. It's the image of a city sending a delegation party or reception group to meet the visiting dignitary who would then escort that important person to their city. Now, if that's what's going on, then that's a very different understanding that the Lord comes down and, and he'll suck you up. This is more we go up to welcome him to our world, to our earth for the second time, second coming. We go up to welcome him and then he makes his home with us. Heaven comes to earth. You see that? Now, whether you agree with this or not, and I'm sure some of you don't, no way, or, or you say, give me a few weeks to think about it. That's totally fine. Either way, it doesn't change the doctrine of the second coming. Jesus is returning. There's a resurrection. There's the judgment of the dead, and there's heaven and hell. Nothing changes by that. It's more a question of where is heaven? And then it ends up, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So I think... When he says these words, he's saying it's okay to talk about the second coming. That doesn't make you weird. Actually, if you don't talk about it, you're a bit lopsided. You're missing it. You know, okay, we all make Christians who only talk about heaven, right? And every other word out of their mouth is a hallelujah or some spiritual word. It's hard to relate to those people. Meet other people who have faith, but they never talk about, I don't know. The, well, they might use the word Christ, but probably not the word Jesus, right? Uh, you wouldn't hear them saying hallelujah or amen. And they have a faith, but, you know, I think we need to be somewhere between those two ends, between those two sides. So what's going on? I think the apostle wants us to be clear, not about the exact details. If there were more details, I think he would have given them to us, right? But the broad outlines, and particularly that the dead in Christ have hope, uh, the general resurrection uh, precedes heaven, and we will join the departed, we'll join the Lord altogether when he returns. Now, in the meantime, between now and that second coming, the clock is ticking. So what we do with our lives, the decisions we make are really important. But what about this next passage in the very next chapter? Concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, your version may say the times and the dates, uh, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. At least a third of the audience is saying, oh, yeah, I remember that. Those labor pains. <laughs> I hate it when a man tries to relate to a woman. He says, yeah, I once had a really bad toothache. Yeah, I relate to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How big was your tooth? <laughs> you know, is it uh, four kilos? <laughs> okay. Uh, so Paul's not going to write to them about signs. Maybe Paul didn't even know what the signs would be. And maybe there are no signs. Because presumably, even though he's an apostle, 
that's of, of no real benefit. Now, if they're looking for signs, well, not long after Claudius, he was the emperor at this time, after he died, which was about three years or four years after this passage, Nero, the sick, perverted, violent, this one of the worst emperors ever. He, people could say, well, that, clearly the end must be near because that guy's on the throne. Mm, 11 years after Nero dies, oh, well, two years after Nero dies, the Romans destroy Jerusalem and the temple, fulfilling all kinds of scripture. Oh, this must be the end. Jesus never said that would be the end of the world, but it was going to be the end of the world for Israel. Seven, nine years after that, Vesuvius erupts, and Pompeii, Herculaneum, and Stabiae are buried under ash or lava. I was just there a few weeks ago with Malcolm and Penny and my wife uh, leading a tour of Paul's prison journey. Well, you, you find signs if you want them in every generation. Wars and rumors of wars. I've had a good number of people write to me and say, Douglas, isn't the end near? Look what's happening with Russia and, the, and Ukraine. And as much as I hate what I'm seeing there, the saber rattling of the Chinese looking at Taiwan and what's that country? The Socialist Workers Paradise. Oh, Democratic Republic of North Korea. Crazy stuff. You could say, oh, the world must be getting near the end. Really? I mean, a volcano, you know, there's been a major eruption this past week in Hawaii, Mauna Loa, which is the tallest mountain in the world, by the way. Most of it's underneath the ocean, but it's way bigger than Everest. I've been there. The concern this morning is, is the lava wiping out the highways. You can look at the rise of Islamism. You can look at our environment and whatever you think about our environment, something's happening. So we can find amazing, awe-inspiring events in every generation. And they remind us of God's power and his judgment, but they don't really allow a timetable. It's not like a bus table. Uh, when will Jesus come? Let me consult hmm, Revelation 20 and put that with Ezekiel 38, a bit of Matthew 24. Okay, now I think I know. It's not like that. It, it was, wasn't written to be that way. In fact, I think Paul is saying the opposite of what the radio preachers are saying. They're saying, look at the signs. It's getting close. To make a donation to my ministry, you do this. You know, it's getting close and people are all saying. I think what he's saying is that wars and rumors of wars are not signs of the end approaching. Crazy things, politically. Things with natural disaster, those are not a sign that we're getting near the end. That's just life as normal, that's business as usual. Don't think for a minute that you're living in a unique generation that's so much worse than the previous ones. And come on, every generation of Christians has thought, we're living in the last generation or we could be. And that's kind of the point. But it, in what way is it worse now? And he says, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Has any of you been burgled? Oh, Steve, okay, four, six. Okay, so it's six, I guess seven, eight, eight burglaries. You weren't sure to put your hand up because it was for the insurance you did it? Yeah, I understand. I see. But did any of us receive a courtesy call? But you know, between 2.10 and 2.20, and we'll wear gloves and we'll try not to make a mess. We'll be entering the premises and take, you get no warning. Actually reminds me of the experience I had here in Watford. Uh, when I first came uh, to UK, it was just part of the, the little team. Uh, we were starting a church in London. A fellow named James Lloyd came June 14th. I came June 15th, 1982. Two weeks later, Douglas Arthur came. Uh, but I was in halls of residence. Uh, I had just finished my master's and I was going on. 
And my hall of residence had no football team. This seemed crazy because they had, they had hockey, they had cricket, but no football team. And it's not just we're in the UK, but this was an international postgraduate hall of residence. I mean, everyone plays football, right? Uh, there have been some really cool things the last few days. And to me, what struck me the most was Germany getting taken out the way they were. That was something. Okay, uh, so I thought, let's start a football team. So I had a captain and a manager, and we got the equipment, and play. I loved it. I was a lot lighter and faster back then. That was uh, 50, 50 pounds ago, three and a half stone ago. All right. And I'm not very fast, but I can block. I know that's not normally a school for a skill the footballer has, but you know, you make it really hard to get around me. And I was running, and all of a sudden I heard this loud, I don't know, something was someone killed, this gunfire. I mean, there was no warning. I thought, wait, it could be a car backfire. I was just running as fast as I could. And then I started going down. And I realized that loud gunshot came from me. No, I wasn't carrying. All three ligaments attaching my left foot to my leg broke at the same time. I almost lost the foot. That was here in Wofford. You know, actually, I had a sick feeling about it because before the match, uh, you know, we're passing the balls and dribbling and drills. And, and the Wofford team, half of them are Nigerians. And they have incredible, this is at the Americans, some American school. These are people with money, but their ball handling skills were scary. I thought, oh, wow, I, I already felt nervous. Anyway, that was my first uh, connection with Watford. <laughs> but it's a little bit like, you know, I'm thinking peace and security, everything's fine. And, you know, then I, I have to have an operation. I'm in, you know, six months in, in, in plaster. It was crazy. You know, we don't normally worry about things that are going to surprise us like that. But there's no escape. Birth pains don't end before the baby's born. And since we can only, what? We cannot predict. That's a fool's errand. We can only prepare. So what should we do? And then Paul says, clearly, yeah, you're not in darkness for the day to surprise you. You're all children of light, children of the day. I think we get that idea. And, and so that means we need to live in a certain way, staying alert. Paul's conclusion is not crack open your Old Testament and study the prophecies and figure out you know, when, when Jesus is coming. No, it's a different kind of watchfulness. It's a moral watchfulness, staying sober. And I don't think he just means don't get drunk. But Christians have a responsibility to be alert. And there's certain things you can do, there's certain medications you could take that would make it very hard to be alert. You know, I mean, something bad would happen and four seconds later you would realize what it was. But if you were sober, you would react instantly. So Christians need to be alert. I'm not preaching about alcohol. That's not the point. But the purpose of that alertness is so that we live in such a way that when he does come, which will absolutely be a surprise, then we won't be left out. I won't say left behind because that's not biblical doctrine in my view. Another reason is to remain alert is the condition of the lost. And there's so many opportunities when we're not with it. And he urges them here uh, to grow in faith, uh, in love, in hope. There's so many more things I could say. Uh, we, we've read that already. We just look at one more passage, and this is in the next letter, which New Testament scholars think was probably written a few months after 1 Thessalonians. And these, these are Paul's oldest letters, probably Galatians, and then 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And he urges them not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a prophecy or a spoken word or a letter, supposedly from us, 
to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He said, no, the day of the Lord hasn't come. <laughs> Paul's been misrepresented. What a surprise that a guy like an apostle will be misrepresented. Then you think of how they misrepresented Jesus. And in his mission, we too can share in that misrepresentation. Not to be confused here. Do we actually believe in the second advent? I'm going to leave you just a couple of questions here. I mean, do you understand that once that happens, there'll be no more time to prepare? Now, I could be wrong. Maybe the Lord will say, okay, caught you, but I'm gracious. I'll give you another three hours to get your story straight. I mean, to get your head together. And, you know, he could do that. He could extend grace or general amnesty. I would love that. But there's nothing in the Bible that sounds like that. So once the second advent occurs, there's no more time to prepare. Maybe, however, we've accepted the narrative of the world that we're free to do as we please. Our daily priorities. Yeah, there's no need for them to reflect that conviction. I can live like my friends. Then I'm more, quote, relatable. I think we need to think a lot more clearly about the second coming and even about our own death. Um, I think many are deeply confused. I was reading yesterday, Canada, the nation to the north of my country, euthanized more than 10,000 people last year. Uh, and it's growing very quickly. And I thought 10,000, Canada is just a wee little country. You know, it's like the 10th or less you know, the size of the U.S. Will the U.S. follow and then we'll be euthanizing 100,000 or 500,000 people a year. And often if people just had access to pain medication and they're with people who love them, they would want to live the extra time. But it's so easy uh, to think that there's no hope. Well, that's the world. Those without God, without hope in the world. Yeah, that's the world. That's the world. But we know that death's not the end. And I'm not here to preach about euthanasia. I'm here to say that there's an end. it's not the end of the story. And even if you're, you did end your life, it doesn't mean that there's nothing to follow. Because ultimately we'll meet God. Do those priorities reflect that conviction? Your meditation on scripture, your prayer, your outreach, how you interact with people you'll meet even today. Also, don't predict. Predicting has zero value. Don't do it. Jesus said, don't do it. Paul said, don't do it. I'm saying, don't do it. Wasting precious resources. Use your brain power, your Bible study time to have an understanding of the whole counsel of God. We can't be perfect, uh, but we stay alert in a state of moral readiness. We prepare. That, that's what's worthwhile doing. And in our life now, we'll be able to live, enable us to live by the power of the Spirit as we trust Him. So the second advent is going to be awesome. Awesome as in a moment of awe, which could be incredibly scary. Awesome for the saints, marveling at God, as Paul says, glorifying God. Or it could be just awful. In Paul's words, that's for those who've not obeyed the gospel. But for those who know the Lord, he offers us eternal life. And so, yes, it'll be stupendous. It'll be awesome. But let's prepare. Let's be ready. And I think that's the point. Jesus came into the world the first time, the incarnation, and that separates Christianity from any other religion. And that's a wonderful thing. And he represents us in heaven, mediating for us right now. Wow. But he will come again, as many scriptures attest. Revelation, Hebrews, 1 Thessalonians, so forth. He'll come again. And at that time, unless I've really misread it, if we're alive, we'll rise, we'll welcome him, we'll come down, Everything will be transformed. It's not just that we're a new creation. The whole creation is a new creation. It's much bigger than we may have thought. 
Thoughts on the second coming. God bless you. Happy holidays. Thanks for having me here. And I'll see you again in March.